Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I have a little quiz for you guys. Not in the sense of last week, but see how many of these you guys can grab. These are the, some of the famous introductions to various books. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. All children, except one, grow up. Peter Pan, J.M. Barry. Maybe the shortest first sentence. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Someone endured that. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Probably the most famous, The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. One of my personal favorites, uh, this is a great opening. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> oh, that was close. Someone got C.S. Lewis right. It's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. Um, two more. I haven't read this, but it just was so interesting. I had to include it. I was born twice. First as a baby girl on a remarkable smogless Detroit day in January of 1960, and then again as a teenage boy in an emergency room near Pedoski, Michigan in August 1974. Oh, man, nobody. That's okay, you're all free on that one. That's Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. And then a long time ago in a galaxy far... (laughs) Didn't have to finish that. (laughs) And then, of course, we have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's not just one time that this famous beginning is used, it's so important that. One of the followers of Jesus, in telling the story of what God had done through his son, decides to echo the same introduction, just full-on plagiarize it, if you will. And he says, in the beginning was the word. And then he goes on to mirror Jesus along with this creation account in Genesis 1, calling Jesus the light as God spoke the light into being. Jesus is the word as God brings all things into being through that phrase we read over and over. God said, God said. This opening line in the beginning is not only catchy, And it's not only a much more original way of saying once upon a time, but it it has more meaning than simply starting a story, than simply saying once upon a time. In the beginning launches something linear. It has a starting point. And it says, now we're going to move in this direction, a constant direction. If there's a start, then things must be going somewhere and there's going to be an end to it. It's implied. Now, this is magnificent thinking because 
The Bible sees linear time has a beginning. It'll have an end while there are neighbors, their pagan neighbors, all thought of life as cyclical as an unending cycle of repetition. And hence they had their interesting relations and methods of worship toward their gods and goddesses, because the idea was every single year we must almost in a voodoo kind of way, manipulate our gods into granting our needs. And so we will behave um, in, in fertile rites in the temple to get the gods to make our earth fertile. And they were very cyclical in the way they looked at life. Everything was just going to keep on repeating, burn back down, grow back up over and over. But then the Bible says in the beginning, and from there it launches us forward on this linear narrative. I say story not to say that this is fiction, not to weaken the factuality of creation, but to mine the riches that this is not just a newspaper reporting. Newspapers can be very black and white, (laughs) quite literally. Uh, But they simply, well, these days we don't know for sure, do we? But they generally pretend to claim the facts. Like, this is what happened. And that's what they're meant to do. They're not real literary. They're not real creative. But this Genesis account is not merely someone holding a microphone and watching God movement by movement and just commentating. He has the puck. He passes across the rink. He shoots, saved by the goalie. It's not quite like that. This is a creative piece of work that's reporting something that had happened. And so I say story to emphasize that there is more here than just reporting. Stories are interesting because they bring shape and structure to what would otherwise be a chaotic and unstructured life. There was a time when talking to my wife, Brittany, would have been something along the lines of, where'd you go to school? What car do you drive? Do you like sports? Favorite book? Best movie? Very superficial kind of language, kind of conversation. It's the exchange of information. But there comes a point when relationships go beyond the mere acquaintance. Acquaintances know facts about each other. I know where you work. I know what you like. I know how you dress. And I've pigeonholed you as this type of person. <laughs> but you, be, you grow a relationship, a true friendship, even a romantic at times relationship, when the exchange of facts becomes the exchange of stories. So, Pastor Brandon... He likes to drink tea. He loves to read books. He spent a good portion of his life, at least adult life, studying the Bible. He likes baseball and hockey, but not football and basketball so much. Um, I drive a Honda. I have a beautiful wife and two great kids. Do you think you know me? Some of you are like, I know more about you than I did before, but you still don't know me, know me. And this is the difference that would happen is if you were to really get to know me and I get to know you, these facts would uncover stories behind them. And you would hear, well, for example, I drink 
tea. Well, that, okay, that's different because Americans drink coffee and usually teach amped enough like you're drinking coffee. So that's interesting. Um, how did you get started on tea? Well, the answer to that is a story. When did you start liking baseball? Because people your age don't seem to follow baseball as much as the other sports. Let me tell you about that. And there will launch a story that begins with your dad and then with Little League. And it goes, there's a story there. See, stories are what happen when we give episodes context. So you run into somebody and there's an episode of their life in which your episode and their episode are simultaneously overlapping. But you don't know necessarily what brought them up to that point in life or what brought them to this point of contact with you. But conversation then unleashes a story in which tells you how, well, they've actually been a missionary to Africa and all over the place. And now they're here on a resting trip and you start to learn so much more. But that takes a story to explain that about them. So stories help us to get to know what is going on and to build structure and shape around what's going on. So stories shape and structure life with meaning. If I was to post up on the screen a picture of a crow up in a tree and a fox underneath the tree and the crow is holding in his beak a piece of bread, you would have to use your imagination to figure out what's happening there. Does the fox want to eat the crow? Is the fox talking to the crow? Is the fox wanting to climb the tree? Did the crow make fun of the fox? (laughs) What is going on? Is this a meeting between the kingdom of the sky and the kingdom of the earth? Are these the only two existing animals in the forest that are left? Are they in love? But then we begin to unfold a story and suddenly this episode makes sense. Well, there's a famine in the land. The crow found a rare scrap of bread. The fox is hungry. The fox is up looking up at the crow, talking to the crow because he wants the crow to talk back so that he opens his beak and drops the piece of bread so that the fox can eat the piece of bread and go on with a semi-full belly. Now, that's an Aesop fable. That's, that's an actual story. But you just look at the episode. You just look at a picture. You don't really know. You're left to your imagination what's happening here. But then you begin to tell a story. And now this episode, this picture has context. It makes sense. You've given it meaning by giving it shape and structure. And when the Bible opens up within the beginning, it's launching a story for us so that we can then structure and shape meaning into our lives. We aren't just floating around in the cosmos without any beginning and without any end, just in this eternal present, this eternal now, and we don't even know what to, what may, what it means. We have an origin and we have an end. And this gives us a shape and a structure. So storytelling usually works in the, along three lines of three acts. Right? Pixar does this. Most movie makers, most novelists will write in three acts. Act one is where you have the setup, the origins. 
Once upon a time, this was the land. These are the characters. Here's the rules of this universe, because it might be different, right, than the one you're used to. And then act two comes, and that's when something happens to your character. And there's conflict. And now there's something he must do. There's something he must overcome. There's something that's going to disrupt his origins. And the conflict, the second act, goes on and on and on. And sometimes there's not one conflict, but there's two and there's three. And it really messes him up. And then it finally comes to the climax in the third act. All of this conflict comes to a head where the character must finally face his greatest fears. He can no longer run around it or dodge it, but he must face it. And he's either going to win or he's going to lose. And at that moment, we enter act three. The climax happens and then everything falls out of that and the thing resolves. Usually for the good, but in morbid stories for the worse. And that's the three act presentation. Now, we here are opening the Bible and we're literally being invited into the first act. In the beginning, God created. There is our origins. And so what we see is that the Bible is a story, the entire Bible. It's a story made up of stories that where the curtain goes up here in Genesis and we see the stage is set because God has put it there. He's created it. And then it goes on and on just, well, not on and on yet. Just for two short chapters, we have act one. Then there's the conflict. Adam and Eve do something a little unfortunate. And then there's act two from Genesis three on and on and on and on and on until the Old Testament comes to an end. Then Jesus hits the scene and John catches on to the third act as in the beginning was the word. And the third act begins with Jesus on the earth. And he's starting to restore this devastated world by doing things that the creator God did way at the beginning of time. And then he, well, he shows us the, the worst of the worst of human, human's evil. And he dies on the cross, but then he rises. And then through faith, the rest of the New Testament is telling us faith in Jesus is the resolution to this story. This is how it's all fixed. So the whole New Testament is our third act. Real simple. Old Testament is Act 2. New Testament is Act 3. We're going to look at it for a few weeks, the little short one act, the first act here, where things start off well. Now, here's what we need to understand, is that it's the second act in life that's always the longest. Movies drag on and on and on in the second act. Books drag on and on and on in the second act. Because, well, frankly, if you resolve the tension, it would be over. So you've got to drag it on so that there's a story. But that's the way it is with life. It's how it is with the Bible. The Old Testament goes, and some of you, if you're brave enough to admit it, you'd be like, goodness, this goes on and on forever. Yes, it does. And the second act in life, your struggle, your conflict, the tension, the place where you feel like you're never going to find resolution, your problems are never going to be solved. It feels like it goes on and on and on. And that's, how it is. So let's talk about that second act, shall we? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, verse 2 says this. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 2 is not pretty. It seems to actually contradict verse 1. God created. And then we look at verse 2 and we say, Ew. No form, void, or in other words, shapeless, empty, has no meaning, no purpose. And yet it's at this point we have to realize that's you and that's me. There is a moment, many moments in life where I am verse two, I am shapeless and empty. I feel like there's a void. I feel like there's no form. I feel like everything's falling apart. We don't know why verse two reads the way it does. There are complex ideas, one in which is the gap theory. It says this, that in verse 1, God created everything. But right before verse 2 happens, there was, we don't know how long, but a huge gap of time in which the devil and God have this cosmic battle. And in the aftermath of their battle, the creation gets destroyed and ruined. And so then we, in verse 2, see, oh, it is destroyed and ruined. And then the rest of the chapter is God recreating and putting everything back together. Possible? Yeah. Probable? In the Bible? No. It's just reading into it. People trying to figure out why is verse 2 like verse 2? The best explanation is that verse one is a title. This is what God's like. He creates the heavens and the earth. Now let me show you. So it's as if the curtain is down on the stage and there's a title. And this is the title of the play. God creates the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And then the curtain rises. And the first thing you see on the stage is verse two. It's dark. There's nothing up there. The audience is disappointed with what they see in this drama. There seems to be absolutely no plan. Where's the director? There's no shape. There's no structure. It's empty. It's dark. This is where the story begins. And is that not how your story has often began? We don't always know, sometimes we do, but we don't always know how or why the chaos in our life is there. Sometimes, and see, this is when it doesn't bother us as much because we have answers. Sometimes I know that all of this mess and chaos in my life is because of my dumb choice over here. And I see the cause and the effect. And I don't like it, but I can understand that. But how many times does it feel like life has simply dealt you a bad hand? And you're looking at it saying, how can I win with these cards? 
and you're thinking, I didn't even ask for this. I never signed up for this. I don't know what I did to deserve this. And all you have to do is look at it and say, here it is. And how often is that where we feel sometimes? That's the ones for me that really bother me. When I can't figure out why my life is formless and empty. And she's like, I've been handed it. I'm like, what? And that's when you get angry. I didn't ask for it. So this is how the Bible starts. It starts the way much of we, our lives feel. It starts with this, ah, what happened? We don't know, but, ah, but here, see, here it is, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we can't just sit there and rip out our hair and say, what happened? What can I change? Sometimes you just can't change what's happened. We simply have to accept where we are. But what we can do is say, in the beginning and from there we move forward. And from there, there's a linear time movement. There's an end, and we can start going in that direction. And so here we are, formless and void, empty. There's chaos, there's darkness, but yet we can look for what happens next. How does God handle a bad hand that's been dealt to us? How does God deal with that? This is how God deals with that. He enters into it and he begins to speak his word into it. He begins to send the vibrating movement and energy of his spirit over the darkness and through the waters so that there's something felt. There's some energy. There's some life happening. That's how God deals with it. What God is good at doing is creating meaning substance, structure, story. He's good at creating meaning out of our chaos. We don't know how to handle it. We don't know what to do with it. God's like, well, just so you know, this whole thing started by my handling something a little bigger than your situation. I can handle it. You're just like one little cosmos in the midst of a very big cosmos. I can handle it. I invented quantum mechanics. Those things you can't see. I'm also the one that's in charge of the galaxies, and we're discovering more and more galaxies. And there's also crazy ideas that there might be other universes. That's a... It's all God to that really big God. And then you're just somewhere in the middle of this spectrum. I can handle it. The little things that you overlook and the big things that you can't handle... I got them. I've got them. So God creates meaning out of our chaos. And that is so liberating because what that tells me is I can't focus on the grandeur of my chaos. Because when I focus on the grandeur of my chaos, I forget the grandeur of my creator. When I focus on verse 2, in other words, that everything's so without shape and it's so empty, when that's all that my eyes are on is how much I lack and how I'm not enough, I can't conceive that God is the creator who can transform chaos into meaning, that can give the formlessness shape and that can give the emptiness something that has substance and life and fill it and give us meaning and fulfillment. I can't focus on verse 2. I have to remember there was a beginning, there's an end. So this middle, this long ongoing second act, it will move on to act 3. And I just have to keep looking that way and moving that way with my eye on the one who's authoring this story. So we see this happen 
at the end of verse 2, we see that the curtain rises and it's not as beautiful as we'd hoped it was, but there's hope. A little ripple of hope. The Spirit of God. Now, Spirit is the Hebrew word ruach. Everyone, ruach. Good. It's always a great excuse to clear your throat, isn't it? This is the best part about Hebrew class. We just all had such a fun time at all those hard endings. That's fun. The teachers kind of get over it real quick. Um, the, the Ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The reason we point out Ruach is because this word comes up more times than you realize in the Bible. It kind of comes up disguised sometimes because the word means, in Hebrew, it means spirit, it means breath, it means wind. So when you read in English, spirit, breath, wind, all of those are the same one Hebrew word, ruach. And we read that there, the ruach of God is moving over the waters, over this formless, shapeless, empty chaos. Then in Genesis 9, after God puts water back on the earth, it says that the flood waters began to subside when the ruach of God began to move over the waters. Oh, that's exactly what's happening here. And then the waters subsided and a new world emerged from those waters. And then the ruach of God once again is seen blowing over the waters when Egypt is hunting the, the Israelites down and they're at the Red Sea and they're pinned in and they don't know where to go and they feel like, well, it's over. We lose in Acts 2. And then the ruach comes and launches the resolution Blows, it said, a mighty east wind over the Red Sea all night, and Israel went through on dry land. The waters do part here, too, in our Genesis account. And then you go to Ezekiel 37, where the prophet has this vision of what Israel looks like when they've turned their back on God. And what he sees is, well, if you've seen The Lion King, it is an elephant graveyard just made out of the Israelites. Just heaps and piles of bones and death and darkness and there's no shape and it's empty here. There's no life. There's no structure. There's no meaning. It's all emptiness. It's all nothing. This is where it all ends, the prophet sees and wonders. And then you know what happens? Are you tracking with me? He hears the wind, or, and, and then God breathes into the bones the word ruach. He breathes, and the bones begin to be enveloped with flesh, and they begin to connect bone to bone to bone, and from the pile of death comes living beings. I'm going to resurrect my people's shattered dreams and their broken lives. The Ruach started this in the creation, and he's been at work since. Then you go to Jesus, who breathes into his disciples before he ascends to the Father. Now we're in the New Testament, but the wording's the same. It's not Ruach, that's Hebrew. The Greek is pneuma, but it means the same. Wind, breath, spirit. 
And then Acts 2, Jesus has ascended to the Father, but then guess what comes down from heaven? A mighty rushing pneuma, or ruach, if you're going to use Hebrew. The Spirit descends upon them. And birthed out of that is the huddled people who don't really know what they're supposed to do with their lives anymore now that their Messiah has gone to heaven and we're not really sure. He just told us to wait around, so here we are. And then the Spirit creates the church out of that. So Pixar has this slide that was really interesting. Um, 22 of their... uh, they're rules to phenomenal storytelling. You have 22 rules to phenomenal storytelling. And I, I just, the whole idea of like how stories work just fascinates me lately. So I was really interested in looking at this. And guess what their number seven rule was? Rule number seven said this. Come up with your ending before you figure out your middle. Seriously, endings are hard. Get yours working up front. Now, I know they're talking about screenwriting and that the, the resolution, the third act of the story is the hardest to kind of get together. So like, make sure you get that figured out before you get your character successfully through the second act. But that really spoke something to me about life. Because we're, we're stuck in the act two and, and we're in the middle of the conflict and we're struggling and we see the shapelessness and the emptiness and, and we're just, all we think about is how am I going to get through act two? How am I going to get to act three? And the whole time, the master storyteller is saying, um, I figured out the ending before I was really worried about how to get you through this little part. And brothers and sisters, the creation account is not just about beginnings. It's also about endings. Because we've seen what God did at the beginning. He took this heap of mess and he made it into this beautiful blessing, called it good. And then in Jesus, we see him taking a heap of messes, pardon me, but I am one too. And then he's made us into something semi-good. And then we see the world and we know the promises of the return of Jesus and how revelation talks about the new heaven and the new earth and the, and, and intentionally using imagery from the garden of Eden to create that new heaven and new earth to describe it. And we see what Jesus is going to do yet again, that this really the Genesis creation story is a story that keeps on replicating itself in individual lives and in the world at large all the time. How does this story end? Well, in 131, God saw everything that he had made and said, eh, it'll do. (laughs) And he said it was very, well, he saw that it was very good. And then he rested. He didn't say, ooh. He said, it's done. It's finished. Another thing John picks up from Genesis, by the way, on the cross. We know how the story ends. So there's a beginning. There's an end. And then there's this empty, shapeless chaos. 
But brothers and sisters, what I want us to see is that what the Bible's doing is it's inviting us into a story so that the middle can start to have shape and structure for us. So that we can see why I'm going through what I'm going through in the longer view of God the creator's plan. God the storyteller's drama. There's nothing worse than just looking at the present situation, verse 2, and saying, well, gee, God's so powerful, isn't he? No, you got to look forward to the ending, too, and realize there's a shape here. Stories have shapes, and it's very important. We've, we were talking about that. Um, here we have a string, and, well, it's very easy to kind of see. You've got two ends to this string, right? You've got over here the beginning, and over here we have the end pretty clear to figure out. This is what the Bible does in the beginning. And then we see through the creation story that there is an end, not just in this story, but there's an end in the whole story too. And we're like, cool. I got, there's a shape. But unfortunately, stories are rarely the shape of a line. That's pretty boring. That sounds like this. Brandon got up and he felt great. <laughs> Already is unrelatable, right? Then he had breakfast, and it was calorie-free and sugar-free and fat-free. <laughs> then he got in his car, and there was no... Well, we don't have traffic up here, but there were no flatlanders on the road. <laughs> Excuse me if you're visiting, but you probably don't know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I never said that out loud. Um, he went to teach school, and the students were so focused... They all did their homework, and they all left class learning everything, and he was just skipping and hopping across the moon. And then, and you're like, well, I, I like how like creatively different this is in real life, but like, this is not a story. This is just pie in the sky. Everything's straight and easy. Stories quite literally look a little bit more like this. Um, <laughs> sorry, babe. <laughs> I quite literally don't know where the beginning and end of this is. I literally have no idea. But this is actually what life is like, isn't it? And you're somewhere in here. You you don't know if you're like towards the end or at the very front of it, but you're in here. But this, this is frustrating. And this is hard to make any meaning or purpose out of. This is hard to use as it is. Like, all I can do is kind of show it to you guys and we can laugh about it. That's about all it's good for right now. What I need in order to make purpose and a shape out of this is to find its beginning and end. And then unravel it, which is going to take a lot of work too. But th- this is what the second act of life is like. It's, it's like stories begin with this whole, like, this. You know, it's pretty simple. The character just really wanted the status quo. They didn't want anything stupendous to happen in their life. They just wanted to keep on going unhindered. And then all of a sudden, this happens. And then we're like, okay, I get this character now. Feels like me. But see, what happens in Genesis, what it's telling us is that the Ruach of God moves into this. And then God speaks into this. 
and he speaks to us through the Bible. And the Bible is telling us the story. It's telling us what act one, two, and three look like. It's giving us the shape of the narrative. And, and by doing that, it starts to show us what this could look like. The Ruach comes into our lives. We're full, we're empty, but the Holy Spirit fills us. We're shapeless, but then the Holy Spirit begins to teach us God's story and to shape our lives according to it. And this mess, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach begins to work into something like this. Right? Now, this is a jacket for my daughter, Avelyn. This is shape. And because it has shape, it has meaning, it has purpose. I don't even have to tell you what this does, what this is for. I'm not to tell you who it's for. It's not me. Um, but this is to keep us warm. This has a purpose. It has meaning. And this is what we need to understand in life, okay? We wanted it to be like this, but let's be honest. Life dealt us a bad hand. Genesis started, the creation story started with something that we wouldn't expect, and that's what life does. It gives us something we don't really expect, and so we're going through this. But we need more than ever to understand that God has a story, and that our stories, he's working to incorporate into his story, so that our history, right? We all have a past. Oh, jeez. Actually, I might be finding the end of this. That's the Ruach working here. He's unraveling it. Um, it is messy, but you get there. Uh, so that we all have a history that led us to this. But what the Ruach does is he comes in and he turns our history into his story, right? And he makes something of it. And that's what he's trying to do. He's not only trying to give us shape and meaning to our lives and to give us a shape to our story, but he wants to pull our stories into his story and into its shape. So real quick to, to close it out like this, this is what the shape of the story is going to look like. And as we go through the Bible, we'll see it. And I'll keep reminding you annoyingly, maybe, maybe I'll tone it down, but the three acts of God's drama, and you could do much more complicated, like five acts and all those kinds of things, but it, real simple. The three-act drama is this. There's a creation, and things get really good. Start from, I don't know, to really good. And then it tips into act two, and it descends into decreation, where the good world is now being run by evil humans. And then it swings back up to act three where the resolution is, and we have recreation. So you have the shape of an N, if you will. I hope I'm drawing that right. It's backwards for me. Um, you have an N. You have creation, decreation, recreation. And at the, at the points of the N, where, where creation dips to decreation, you have the rebellion of Adam and Eve, their failure. And then where, where the decreation flips up to recreation, you have the work of the Ruach. You have the work of Jesus. You have the Gospels. And it's his death and resurrection that swing that back upward. And so our story is fitting in there. Now, we try to resolve our stories in different ways. And it all depends on how you see your beginning. We're all in the conflict stage. We're all in Act 2. And we're all trying to get to the resolution. But listen, the answer, your resolution, your answer depends heavily upon what you saw act one as. Because the resolution is always trying to get us back to what was in a much better form. 
So, if you believe that the human body was created to be free and liberated and best known through sexual exploration, then for you, Act 2 is about the dumb Christians and their teachings and their imperialistic attitude about sexual purity that they have infiltrated in our community. So we're going to try to break that down because our resolution comes when there's finally sexual liberty. And this is why in colleges we see young people living out in sexual promiscuity because this is the story. It's morality has been the enemy. So we will find the resolution. And that's the answer. Because to them, the answer was, well, the body should be explored. So let's solve it. Individualism works in this way too. We're unique human beings, but society put pressures and try to conform us into a certain image of what it is. And we're no longer authentic and unique. And so now I'm going to, you know, be myself independent from everybody else. I can just be myself. Uh, That's, that's one way you could tell that story. Or how about the Enlightenment, the one that we all still live in, at least in our society. We live in this one. In the beginning, um, we realize that knowledge is power. But the problem in Act 2 is that, well, people robbed knowledge from us. There was illiteracy. And science and technology were sort of silenced by Christianity, the story they tell. So now in Act 3, science and technology will lead us into the better world. We'll finally get knowledge back. So we'll talk like the church is dumb and we'll move on and put science and technology in the forefront. Or you have the biblical story. And do you identify your story with this story? Creation, decreation, recreation. In the beginning, we had relationship with God. But the problem, the conflict of act two is that that relationship isn't doing very well. And we initially think it's on God's end. God could be nicer and he can make more effort. But then we slowly learn through Jesus that, no, he's done everything he can, even dying on the cross for us. The problem's on our end. And then Act 3 looks like what the New Testament's been screaming at us forever. Faith in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Come to Jesus, and you will find relationship with God. But sometimes we think too big, and we discourage ourselves. So I want to Close with this poem by Emily Dickinson. You want real shape and structure and meaning in your life? Follow this simple advice. If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching, or cool one pain, or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. God is a detangler. He unravels our mess. If we can do a little bit of that in one person's life, you live like the creator and your life is not in vain, no matter how meaningless it feels. One person at a time approach. God's doing the same with us. Let's pray. So, Lord, the knot we find ourselves in, 
Since we've been trying to untie it, some of us in here have been pulling so hard on that knot, we've unknowingly made it harder. And I think God is saying tonight to you that (laughs) you're the problem. Stop pulling on the knot. But he says it lovingly as Christopher Robin looks at Pooh Bear's foolish attempts to do things. It's a silly old bear. God tonight's looking at us and our tangles, our entanglements, and he's says, silly old humans. And he's asking us to let go tonight, to stop tugging on that knot yourself, and to let the Spirit of God hover over your life. And to let the word of God breathe into your being. It's not easy, but the Bible tells us to trust him. And that's the way through. Lord, you're asking us to trust you. We pray that as we take communion and see your broken body and your spilled blood, that that would starkly remind us how worthy of our trust you are. That we will go from beginning to end with you wherever that leads. Because you've already went anywhere for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.